Should you ever set foot outside of the motel, you will be shot. Don't miss the new Showtime limited series based on the international bestseller. For the last four years, I've been a prisoner. Why are they keeping you here? Starring Emmy Award winner Ewan McGregor. This is the brave new world that you dreamt of. Be very careful. You are still a prisoner here. Everything in this new world comes at cost. This is still my country. A Gentleman in Moscow. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Only with the Paramount Plus with Showtime plan. The chilling new original docuseries on Paramount Plus. Why did he kill his family? The answer lies across the ocean in a woman named Sylvie. She's a can model. Where desire leads to deception. I ended up spending twelve and fifteen thousand dollars a day. It was addictive. I can't get you out. And obsession leads to murder. Who did this to your family? You can't really maintain a fantasy forever. Control all desire. Now streaming on Paramount Plus. Good morning. It is Friday, November 20th. You're listening to the College Football Daily. My name is Trey Scott. Happy Friday. Uh, Today on the episode, we're going to do what we do just about every Friday. I'm going to quickly run through any news you need to know about. We're going to talk about the games this weekend that you need to know about, fingers crossed. And we're going to do an editor's cut of team site podcast from around the 24-7 sports network, if you will, which is, as I tend to do, I choose an episode that caught my attention this week and we provide a snippet of it for you. And then if you're interested in listening to the full thing, you can go back and, and do that on the 24 seven sports platform. And today's episode is great. It, it's from the on the bench, uh, Florida state football podcast from host Brennan Sinone. He's an interview with the ESPN writers who did a deep dive on Florida state's six year unraveling from Jimbo Fisher in the 2013 national championship, all the way down to this uh, storm of, crud that Mike Norvell has inherited. So uh, we're going to get to that in just a second. As far as news items to know for the week, another uh, slew of cancellations, if you will, this week in college football. Uh, 15, last I looked, and I'm recording this on a Thursday afternoon. The way the news comes, you know, you might lose another game or two. So we're just at this point, I think it's yeah, we're we're lucky if we hover around fifteen to twenty cancellations or postponements every week, and then we're lucky to get the games in that we can. Speaking of getting games in, the Pac-12 has voted to approve non-conference football games to be added if they can be to this year's schedule for the Pac-12 teams. So, uh, for instance, if Oregon or USC loses another game and they can't find a Pac-12 team to play that week, and remember the Pac-12 has already allowed that to happen, and, and that's how UCLA. And, and Cal played um, with 48 hours of notice last week. If you can't find a, a Pac-12 team to just reschedule, you can find a non-conference opponent. And when I think that, I think BYU. Because the Power Five conferences, no one else is is probably going to be able to do that. Uh, the SEC won't even allow it. Neither will the Big Ten. But if you're Oregon or you're USC and you're trying to bolster a playoff resume, hey, Take on the Cougars. I think that'd be really fun. And for BYU, what do you have to lose at this point? You want to get into the playoff, schedule a few Pac-12 teams. The Pac-12 likes to move slow. Um, We'll see if they actually get any non-conference games in this year. I feel like they only have a month to do so, and you need probably a week of planning. So uh, best of luck out there. I'd love to see it happen. And then Bill Hancock, college football playoff director, says playoff is still on schedule. They have no plans to add a replacement 
format for this year, meaning no you know fifth team or sixth team, which would be important because what if you have a Rose Bowl scheduled between teams two and three and team three has a COVID outbreak? Well, instead of getting that game replaced with the other opponent, um, which probably would be a punishment for getting COVID, they would just try to delay or postpone, which also would be a mess. So I don't know how that's going to work. I just, you know, we'll just kind of close your eyes and say, we'll get to January when we get to January. Hopefully, 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 um, college football programs will have a better grasp on COVID-19 once we get back from Thanksgiving break, because students across the country, for the most part, will not be returning to their campuses. The student athletes will. So maybe we'll see a period that we saw this summer where after the reacclimation period where players are coming back from their hometowns, if they are leaving anywhere for Thanksgiving, we see a, a bit of a bubble begin to form. That sure would be nice to not have any stresses about this stuff as we enter championship weekend and then bowl season. If we, if we still do bowl season and of course uh, college football playoff. So games this weekend. And remember, this is all subject to change. Um, I was sitting here yesterday podcasting when my beloved Texas Longhorns lost their game against the Kansas Jayhawks. Uh, it was my first time experiencing the canceled game uh, this year, and I got to tell you, it hurts. It's it's not fun. So my heart goes out to anyone who has uh, built their weekend around uh, an admittedly bad football game and then still lost it. It's no fun. All right, so Saturday. Actually, we'll start with Friday. Friday is kind of fun. Um, Purdue versus Minnesota. Purdue's kind of good. Uh, Minnesota's kind of not very good. I'm excited to see if Rondale Moore makes an appearance for for Purdue this weekend. Um, he remember he opted out, and then he opted back in, but he hasn't played yet. So I don't I don't know what what's happening there. Um, it's a very weird thing uh, that is it COVID like what's what's going on. But if Purdue gets Rondale Moore back and te- teams him up with David Bell that team becomes really dangerous all of a sudden. Also on Friday is Syracuse versus Louisville. Look at that. Syracuse is one and seven. Louisville's two and six. Both of these teams are disappointments this year. On Saturday, Big Ten East, battle for the Big Ten East. Number nine, Indiana at number three, Ohio State. The Buckeyes are a three touchdown favorite. We talked plenty about Tom Allen on yesterday's podcast with Steve Wolfong. Ohio State hasn't played in a few weeks because of their game against Maryland got canceled and Maryland's game this week versus Michigan state got canceled too, because of the Terps outbreak. How does Ohio state look? How does their defense play? Is Justin Fields still as sharp as he was last time we saw him. Speaking of sharp, Trevor Lawrence have not seen him in gosh, almost a month now Uh, missed two games with COVID-19 Clemson was off last week. And now the number four tigers, are going to Tallahassee to play Florida State. They are a 35, uh, the Seminoles are a 35 and a half point underdog. All indications are that Clemson's going to come out mad and red hot uh, w- with rage after their loss to Notre Dame and a week off to, to try to get healthy. But it'll be nice to see Lawrence back in the fold. Florida's playing Vanderbilt. Can Kyle Trask keep his Heisman momentum going? LSU plays Arkansas. Arkansas opened as a favorite. The line has swung back in favor of LSU. Baton Rouge, uh, things aren't looking so good there. They they have institutional issues that they need to get fixed that we spoke about last week or earlier this week with Kenny Jacoby of USA Today. Um, on the football field, they better be able to stop Arkansas. 
and it's it's going to be tough for them to score two on a, on a pretty good Razorback defense with uh, without quarterback Miles Brennan. That would be a pucker up loss. Think about it. Arkansas was picked to finish second to last in the SEC and, and last in the SEC West this year. And if they beat the defending national champions, oh my gosh. Uh, Big Ten West matchup is going to be between Wisconsin and Northwestern. Both of those teams are going to play a lot of defense. We still don't know that much about Wisconsin, I feel like. They played two games. They beat Michigan pretty handily last week. But Northwestern is going to be a much tougher test, I think, than the Wolverines. Uh, if you're interested in watching Oregon, watch them on ESPN2 in the afternoon against UCLA. Oregon hasn't looked great the last few weeks. I know they're winning, but they had they had a lot of turnovers against Washington State. Um, Chip Kelly's Bruins, they always start off slow. Oregon looks like they're starting off slow too. So who comes out hot? That will be telling. Can Penn State get its first win of the season? It is a home underdog to the Iowa Hawkeyes. I feel like James Franklin would love that. Alabama's back in action. Mac Jones versus Kentucky, the team he was once committed to. Alabama, because the LSU game was canceled last week and because Alabama had to buy before that, has not played in quite some time either. So I, I think that's a general trend here. How, how sharp does Mac Jones look? How sharp does Justin Fields look? How sharp does Trevor Lawrence look? All those guys haven't played in a few weeks. Um, meanwhile, Kyle Trask is red hot and riding into on, on some pretty solid momentum. I'm trying to see anything else. Anything else catches my eye? Aha, yeah. Georgia versus Mississippi State, the starting debut for JT Daniels, the former five-star recruit who transferred from USC. We have yet to see him take the field for Georgia this year. What if JT Daniels lights it up? And we say, oh, man, that he would have looked pretty good against Florida. I almost feel like Kirby Smart's backed himself into a lose-lose situation here, but if they can beat Mississippi State and they should pound them and, and JT Daniels looks good and they roll the rest of the way, I, I think you can sell that to your fan base. And then, finally, last one I'll spotlight because this is this is running on a little bit. Bedlam in the Big 12. Number 14, Oklahoma State against number 18, Oklahoma. OU's a seven-point favorite. It's in Norman. I don't know. I feel like if Mike Gundy's going to beat the Sooners, he hasn't done it all that often in his, in his career. This should be the year. Both of these teams are still alive in the Big 12 title race. Everyone in the top four, Texas and Iowa State, and then the Oklahomas, they all control their own destiny. Um, it's, it's, it's usually a close game. Usually Oklahoma wins, but it's usually a close game. I'm excited to watch it. It will be a nice change of pace, pace. And that's the ABC primetime game on 7:30 Eastern for the love of God. Can we get Kirk Herbstreet and Chris Fowler a close game to call? If we don't start giving them better material, they might leave for the NFL. Um, I sure hope not. So, all right, that was, that was what to watch this weekend. And that, what is this? This week 12, um, I really am excited to play this podcast snippet for you all. It's, I believe, 16 minutes long, and, and it'll be the last voice you hear on today's episode of The Daily. But it's it's Brendan Sinone, who does a great job on our Knowles 24-7 site and the On the Bench podcast, uh, with an interview with Andrea Adelson and David Hale, the ESPN writers who published on Thursday uh, a 9,000-word story called They're in a Deep, Deep Hole Inside the Six-Year Unraveling of Florida State Football. I mean, it's it's really solid. Um, everything from Jimbo Fisher and why did he leave? You know, bad relationships with his AD and boosters, and upset that Florida State wasn't devoting enough resources to facilities and was still kind of caring too much about basketball. To Willie Taggart and was that higher rush? And why did Willie Taggart get fired after two years? And why that was probably the right call? And then does Mike Norvell? Did he come to Tallahassee this year with any sort of inkling? as to the mess he had on his hands. I think 
Uh, it, it was a great article. The podcast whole thing's an hour long. Our snippet's not nearly that long, but I encourage you to go find it on the On the Bench and FSU Football Podcast page on the 24-7 Sports platform. The next voice you hear after the break will be Andrea Adelson and then David Hale, and then you'll hear host Brennan Sinone pulling it together. They're going to be starting to talk. Uh, when you first hear them, they're going to be talking about the reporting process on this story and, and how long it took and why they decided to write it. So uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. The College Football Daily will be right back. This is Tony Kornheiser's show. I'm Tony. We expected someone else. So what exactly is the show about? Hmm, I don't know. It's a sports show nominally. Football's over, but we're finally at a point where things matter in college basketball and baseball season is on deck. Greatest three words in the English language, pitchers and catchers. We have some of the best voices come on and explain what matters or what makes an upset, like Ryan does, <laughs> nine over eight. No, that's not an upset. No, yeah, it is, Bob. And if you're lucky, I might just tell you about my search for discounted sleep pants or my worries about what my dog just ate. Listen on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Essentially, we've been working on this since July with a lot of stops and starts because of all the other regular football stuff that we have to do. And um, we both connected with the people that we have gotten to know throughout the course of covering Florida State. I live in Orlando. David Hale covered Florida State for ESPN for many years in Tallahassee. So we just had a large bank of sources and connections. Uh on both Jimbo Fisher's staff and Willie Taggart's staff and inside the administration and Seminole Boosters. And those were all the key players involved. And so many phone calls, many late nights, um, many struggles and frustration, all in the hopes of trying to tell as complete and balanced a story as we could. Yeah, I I remember, I think really the biggest, turning point and wanting to do it because as Andrea said we've been sort of kicking it around for a long time but um it was sort of the combination of of Andy Miller stepping down which really feels like I mean it was sort of like about in retirement in a lot of ways like people who don't follow Florida State closely I don't think will ever grasp what a massive figure within FSU athletics and Tallahassee that Andy Miller was and and him stepping down is sort of a changing of the guard that allowed people to take a little bit of a, all right, maybe we should take a look back at where we've been. And, and then the, the budget cuts that they made, I mean, I, you know, Brandon, I'm sure you felt the same way. I mean, we have friends who got laid off there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's hard not to ask yourself in a moment like that, like, well, you know, well, how do we get here? What, what, what led to, to a school like this having to make these kind of decisions? And this was decisions made before all of the coronavirus impact was really felt. Um, and so I, I think a lot of us, Andrea and I, the more we talked about it, we were like, you know, up until now, there's probably people who didn't really want to reexamine this. But I think there really felt like a this summer felt like a time in which everybody was ready to say, like, all right, we know some mistakes have been made. We're ready to talk about it. I think there was some people who wanted to correct what they thought was kind of an imperfect narrative about where blame belonged. There were some people who were just frustrated at where things were and wanted to see changes. Um, and it just sort of was a perfect storm where people were happy to talk. And that in our in our shoes as reporters, uh, we were happy to listen and we did a lot of it. And uh, I think the story comes out at about 9,000 words. It could have been, it could have been twice that easily. Uh, we could write a whole nother story on the stuff that we left out of it. But the goal was hopefully to kind of showcase all sides of this. Um, 
and hopefully it came out balanced. We we spent some sleepless nights trying to get it there. What was, David, the and you mentioned all the reporting you guys have done uh, and with your history covering Florida State and the ACC, uh, both of you have, have better part of, of a decade at least covering this program God to rolled. some extent. <laughs> Let's, now let's, com- let's combine your experience. Uh, so, David, what what was the, I guess, the part that was in doing this reporting, The re- what was the biggest revelation? Like, what surprised you? What was something that maybe became clear that you had an indication of that became crystallizing? Uh, the one detail that, that made it into the story that, that really stuck out to you? I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you sort of kind of know you know, if you've gotten, if you've been around Florida State and you understand how the the politics of Tallahassee work and the inner machinations of of sort of the culture within Florida State, there's a lot of stuff that you sort of assume. And this story really confirmed a lot of that. Um, I think the biggest thing for me that that I was not really expecting going in was the idea that of how close maybe Jimbo was to staying at Florida State. That I, I think. You know, the, the, the Texas A&M offer, I think there was a lot of pressure on him to take it. I think the money was there. I think it was sort of like, hey, I don't have to fight any battles anymore. I can go to A&M and get all the stuff I ever wanted. But I didn't realize how much his heart was still in Florida State. Like, I, I, I think, and I was told by probably a half dozen people who would know that up until that last week, um, he really was hopeful that they could find common ground and he could stay at Florida state and that him leaving was while probably a, a smart professional decision, a really, really difficult personal decision for him. And um, look, it's easy to view Jimbo as a villain in all of this. uh, And a lot of people will. And Jimbo is, I think from an outsider's perspective, if you look at Jimbo, he is a tough guy that is not maybe the easiest person to like. Uh, but as numerous, numerous people said, and, and I think as, as all of us have seen at various times uh, when we've interacted with him, but behind that facade, there is a genuine person. And when he shows that to someone, um, you know, I think that emotion comes through and, and talking to people about what those last few weeks at Florida State were like for him. I think I had underappreciated just how emotional and difficult that was for him. Andrea, same question to you, I guess, what in your reporting kind of kind of stuck out the most and kind of hit you over the head to say this is this is something I had really no idea that this existed to this extent before before we start digging in I agree with David everybody that I talked to said um, Jimbo didn't want to leave even going into 2017 when people thought he already had one foot out the door because he'd been talking to LSU and that became a big story he felt he could be the next Bobby Bowden at Florida State. And I had several players tell me they should have just given him the money. He should have never left. They should have just given Jimbo everything that he wanted. I think a couple of other things really stuck out. All the players unilaterally defended Jimbo Mm -hmm. in everything that Mm -hmm. happened. No one blamed him. And even more interestingly, everybody I talked to who uh, coached or was with Willie Taggart did not blame Jimbo either. They all felt that they had no idea what they were walking into and they immediately saw and understood why Jimbo fought so hard to get the money for facility improvements and how difficult it was to get anything done with the power structure and the dynamic, the way that 
it was at Florida State. And I think a third thing that really stuck out to me in all the people that I've talked to, and I think we both talked to people in every single camp, you know, administration, Seminole Boosters, Jimbo, Taggart. The only folks who accepted any blame were on the Willie Taggart side. Hmm. The only ones who said we made mistakes were on the Willie Taggart side. I didn't hear anybody tell me anywhere else we could have done this better. We should have done this better. Maybe we should have tried a little harder here or there. And I thought that was really interesting because quite honestly, mistakes were made on all sides. There is enough blame to go around for everybody who's been involved inside that program. And Willie Taggart, who you could argue came into a very difficult situation and did make mistakes and made it worse, no question. Those folks who coached with him and under him and played for him um, didn't really um, feel as if they had a fair shake, but also understood that he made mistakes that ended up costing him. So there's a lot to unwrap, which makes sense. It's a 9,000 word story and, and thoroughly reported. Like to get 50 people to talk for a story on background, even uh, not not on you know not off record, but on background is is so hard to do. So again, kudos to you guys. But there's so much to unpack here, and I'm trying to think of the right place to kind of start going uh, in, in the time that we have. You guys both mentioned Jimbo and the way he was perceived by his players, uh, the way he was perceived by administration, by boosters. And these are very different ways he, he's looked at. Uh, did you end up viewing him? I know after reading the article, I almost saw him as kind of sympathetic, uh, as balanced as the story was. I mean, there was a side of him that we already knew that was kind of the gruff, uh, jackass type of, type of guy, very power hungry <laughs> in some uh, extent, but then also... Uh, the human part of him too, and, and the loyalty that that players had to him. How did you guys perceive him as, uh, would you say he was either sympathetic, uh, more of the villain? Like how, how did he come off when you're writing the story in your mind? You know, I had somebody very close to Jimbo that told me that they described him as like Jimbo. And this is the thing I heard. I mean, even back in like 2012 and 13, people would say it, but I don't think I really grasped the, uh, significance of it all until putting a story like this together that Jimbo had two mentors in college football. One was Nick Saban and one was Bobby Bowden. And he desperately wanted to be like both of them, but they are two very different people. And it really, I think showcases that two sides, that duality of Jimbo Fisher and that he was a uh, uh, very micromanaging, wanted to get ahead success at all costs, uh, you know, let's all get behind football and do it my way, Nick Saban person. But he loved the sort of family idea of I'm going to build this legacy. Uh, this school is going to be, you know, synonymous with me. Um, I, you know, I get behind. He's, you know, loyal to a fault for the guys that were in his circle. And, I, you know, all of that stuff felt very Bowden-esque. And, I think this was sort of at the heart of where a lot of the problems were. It's like, if you're going to be a Bobby Bowden school and you want to be a Bobby Bowden coach, you're going to do things one way. And that way pluses and minuses to, to that decision. And if you're going to do it the Nick Saban way, then you got to do it that way. And I think even down to Jimbo Fisher at throughout that entire era, no one was quite sure which side of that fence they wanted to be on because they saw the, the positives to both sides. 
and were frustrated by the negatives of both sides. And that to me just sums up not just Jimbo, but Florida State during that whole era. And in, in a lot of ways, I think I think is still sort of the big question that's being wrestled with. I mean, I, the, the, the analogy that I used in this story was that Florida State had a lot of success as sort of the last great mom and pop store in college football. And now college football is much more of a, uh, you know, Wall Street, Silicon Valley, big business enterprise than it was during Bowden's era. And I don't, I don't know if that mom and pop store works anymore. Um, but it's who those, it's ingrained in the culture and, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's just, I don't, I don't know how much it works. And I think that was what Jimbo wrestled with too. I think what really was interesting in a lot of the conversations that I had was Jimbo had his reasons for wanting all of the upgrades that he kept demanding. He saw Clemson coming. He saw what Clemson was building under Dabo. He saw the unified vision that they had for Clemson football. He wanted that for Florida State because he knew if he didn't have it, eventually Clemson was going to overtake them. And what happened was Jimbo was so demanding, he could never explain why he needed these things without being combative and angry. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to build relationships with your administration or your donor, Seminole Boosters, there has to be a little bit of a give and take. There has to be a relationship. And there was no relationship. So while Jimbo's requests are valid, Look at what Clemson has. Look at where Florida is going with their standalone uh, that they're building, $85 million. They've finally made investments. Jimbo knew he needed that, but he couldn't really articulate it in a way that didn't tick people off. And he ticked a lot of important people off to the point where they stopped listening. And that is never a good situation to be in when you're trying to run an elite power program that's trying to win championships. And when you look at Florida, you know, for example, and I'll use them because, you know, they're they're down the road. Florida was in almost Florida State situation 10 years ago. They had had all this success under Urban Meyer. They make a bad coaching hire. They're asking for facility upgrades. Jeremy Foley, the athletic director at the time, refused. Florida went through years where the facilities there were what they were when I was a student in the 90s. And they fell behind in recruiting and they made some bad football hires and they struggled for years and years. Florida State fans aren't used to this. They never had a bad coaching hire before. Willie Taggart was the first one that they've had that they can remember. So while it looks great what Florida is doing right now, they went through many, many years in the wilderness where they had to figure out what their vision was going to be. And I think that's what Florida State needs to do right now. All righty. That's going to do it for today's episode of the College Football Daily. If you enjoy what we do, we'd love a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review if you think there's something we should be talking about that we are not talking about. Otherwise, we'll talk to you on Monday. It will be a Brandon Marcello episode. I will be traveling for Thanksgiving. I'll be in the car. Brandon Marcello will be recapping Week 12's action next Monday on the College Football Daily.